seeking a substitute can be a good experience depending of the context. If uh, you are in the teaching industry, as a teacher in the school system, and uh, the teacher gets sick, let's say you're a teacher, and you get sick, uh, you hope that the school you work for has a list of some substitutes that they can call upon uh, so that you don't have to go to work and take your sickness to the kids and they take the sickness on to their families. Substitutes, depending on the context you are in, can be a good thing. But there's some context in which it's not. Imagine you are an employee and your boss comes and tells you that for some reason or another, uh, they need to find someone else in your place. And you're no longer suitable for the job. A substitute in that context is not a good thing. At least you don't feel it as a good thing. Imagine another scenario that you are a parent. You raise up children. And when they're young, they, they love you, they depend on you, they, they acknowledge that they, they can't live life, and they really they can't without you. But as they grow and become young adults, uh, this virus that goes throughout our world infects them as well, the virus of independence. And uh, not that independence is totally wrong, there's a time for, for them to actually become independent. Uh, but they start uh, treating you with less both respect, uh, with less recognition of your authority rightfully over their lives. Um, they, and they start choosing their friends over you. They start choosing their heroes and replacing your authority and your influence over them with those heroes or friends. So they begin substituting you uh, for the authority and the influence that you should have and should continue to have over them. And being on the receiving side of that kind of substitution is always, always very painful. Well, this morning, I would like for us to look at a passage of Scripture when the people of God, and more particularly the leaders of the people of God, Seek a substitute. And it's not of the first kind when seeking a substitute is a good thing. It's of the latter kind when seeking a substitute is a very poor choice. This morning we're going to see how the leaders of Israel are seeking a substitute for God himself. Would you open God's word to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Uh, verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we would encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. They're black-looking Bibles. Uh, you may find this passage on page number uh, 230. And uh, if you don't have a Bible that you actually own, we'd love for you to just grab the pew Bible, take it home with you, and it's yours. It's our gift to you. This morning, let's hear God's Word. It says the following. 
when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. For the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we, all, that we also may, may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of this word? Father, You preserve in your word the experiences that your people have had with you. And in this particular case, 
a very bad experience. Father, open our hearts. Help us see. Help us learn the lessons that you have desired to teach your people centuries ago, yet they have not learned it. Father, teach us these lessons for us today. Help us to be unlike the people of Israel at this time. Help us, Father, to, to look to you as our king and not turn our eyes to any other substitutes in your place. We pray all this for the glory of Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit who is among us. Amen. Amen. The story in chapter 8 is like a major downturn in the book of 1 Samuel. Not that this is the first bad experience in, in the book. It, the book started on a poor note. If you remember the, the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel in, in the early chapters of this book, Eli and his sons, but God raised a faithful leader in the midst of that corrupt leadership. God raised a faithful prophet in the young boy Samuel and in his ministry. And in chapter 7 of this book, the chapter we looked at last Sunday, we saw how God used Samuel to lead the nation to corporate and public repentance, to turn away from the foreign gods and to seek the Lord exclusively to worship and serve their God, the true God, exclusively. And they did it in chapter 7. Chapter 7 was like a high peak, a high mountaintop experience. And God saved His people from their enemies. We read in, at the end of chapter 7 that God's hand was against the enemies of His people and brought them a long season of peace with their neighbors, as long as Samuel's ministry was among them. But the events of chapter 8 take a downturn in the storyline of, of this book. In this chapter, the elders, the elders of the people of Israel, request a king. Now, having a king was not evil in itself. Like we saw earlier in our service, in the reading from Deuteronomy chapter 17, that God had provided instructions in, in the book of Moses, in the book that, that Moses wrote, uh, instructions of what kind of king they should have. A king who would govern unlike the nations. But this chapter, chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, reveals... That what was evil in their request for a king was the motivation that led them to the request. Chapter 8 reveals that the elders of Israel are actually seeking a God substitute. They are looking to a king to take on the role and the responsibility that God had over them. They are looking to a, a king who would act in the place of God in their lives. And that was a significant downturn in all this request. So as we look at the story of chapter 8, there's going to be four major scenes that, uh, that, that 
unravel the downward uh, experience that the elders of Israel take. We're going to see the first scene, a new crisis emerges. That's the first scene, a new crisis emerges. In a second scene, we're going to see the true diagnosis is exposed. The true diagnosis is exposed. Then in the third scene, we're going to see a clear warning that is given. A clear warning is given. And finally, the story ends, sadly, with a stubborn decision being taken. A stubborn decision is taken. So let's look at this unraveling of a downward uh, experience and direction in the life of the people of Israel. Uh, the new crisis emerges. Uh, the beginning of chapter 8 takes us all the way to Samuel's old age. As Samuel became old, a crisis of leadership emerged. We find out in verses 1, 2, and 3 that Samuel put his sons to be judges over Israel uh, in the southern part of, of the nation, in Beersheba, it's the southern part of, of the country. But sadly, they did not follow Samuel's shoes. Uh, look with me to verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, the word for gain refers not to any type of gain, as if, as if just income from work. Uh, but particularly, this word is used as gain unjustly earned. Some Bible translations, depending on what other versions you might be looking at, uh, may have the following rendering. His sons did not walk in his ways, but turned after dishonest gain. And the text tells us what was dishonest about their gain. It was uh, bribes. They were receiving bribes, which then had the effect of perverting justice. Listen to the following instructions that God gave in Deuteronomy chapter 16 the chapter prior to the one we read in our service earlier. In chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, God said the following about appointing judges. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert to justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. How sad that Samuel's two sons ignored these instructions about their office as judges and abused their leadership role by accepting bribes and ungodly income and therefore perverting justice. Friends, if our hearts turn towards the love of money, it will be easy for us to fall in the traps of ungodly means of income. Where, whatever those means of ungodly income uh, might, may be. In the New Testament, one of the qualifications for elders in the church is that they should not be lovers of money. But friends, this is not just for elders. This is for all of us who should be wary and cautious uh, against the love of money, which makes us vulnerable for ungodly means of income. The Lord used Samuel to help the people of, of Israel turn to the Lord, but 
Now, at the, in the old age, Samuel's own children had not followed, followed in his steps. Friends, just pause for a moment to observe that spiritual leadership, even faithful spiritual leadership, is no guarantee that our children will turn out to be followers of the Lord. Parents, pray that the Lord would move in the hearts of our children. That they would follow the Lord. That they would love the Lord. That they would serve the Lord all the days of their lives. But at the end of the day, we must realize that even if we are faithful to the Lord, it is no guarantee that our children will follow. If you have children that are not following the Lord, don't assume necessarily that something is wrong with you. Here's Samuel, a faithful prophet of the Lord, and his children are not following in his footsteps. The appointment of Samuel's children as spiritual leaders, judges over Israel, was a big mistake, given the fact that they were not following the Lord. And it was a big concern that had to be addressed. And the elders of the people are addressing it. But instead of asking from the Lord how to solve this crisis of leadership, as Samuel was getting older and as his sons were becoming corrupt, instead of asking of the Lord and praying to the Lord for a solution for the spiritual leadership of transitioning moving forward, the elders come up with a man-made solution, a solution that clearly they did not get from the Lord. They request a king. But in their request for a king, they reveal where they looked for the solution. They looked to the nations. They want to be like the nations, even though God made them to be a different kind of nation, unlike the nations of their times. Look at verse 4 and 5. The elders say, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Instead of looking to God, for a solution, instead of coming to Samuel and doing what happened in chapter 7, where the people came and said to Samuel, Samuel, would you pray to the Lord for us to bring deliverance? That was a good experience they did in chapter 7. But instead of continuing with that kind of approach, they come to Samuel. Instead of asking for prayer, they demand a solution. They already made up their minds with a solution. Yes, the elders react against Samuel's sons as future leaders, and rightly so. But the elders committed an even more grievous sin by taking the path of looking to the nations for a solution and coming and telling Samuel what the answer is and wanting Samuel to bless it and do it. Friends, have you ever, have you ever done something like this when you, when you tell the Lord, what he should do. There's a problem. You work through it. You figure out the solution. You look around. You know what the culture around us tells you what to do. You make up your mind and you bring that solution to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, this is, this is what I'm praying for. 
This is what I'm believing for. This is what I'm claiming. Oh, friends, be very cautious of coming with solutions to God. It's supposed to be the other way around. We're supposed to come to God for solutions, not to God with solutions. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. And recognize that we tend, as people, to respond sinfully when others sin against us. Just because others act sinfully does not give us a pass to act sinfully and find solutions that our world gives us. Friends, ask yourself if, if others are sinning against you. Do you see in you an inclination to take the world's solution to the sin that others cause to you? Are you inclined to take clues from our culture around us to find a solution to the sin problem that others cause against you? Or do you seek the Lord first and foremost? The crises we face may be temptations for us to look around us and see how the world would solve our problems. But be careful that you don't deepen the crisis that you are facing by seeking a human-made solution and then coming to God and suggesting that He should do it for you. So a, a new crisis emerges. Watch out that you don't deepen that crisis by the approach you take in solving it. The true diagnosis is exposed. Sin number, or scene number two, the true diagnosis is exposed. When the elders request Samuel to appoint for them a king, to judge them like all the nations, it caused Samuel deep disappointment. He has been the one who has judged them up until now. Look at verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Friends, Samuel's reaction here is such a contrast to the elders. In some way, now Samuel has a leadership crisis because his own leadership is, is right now being asked to be removed and substituted for somebody else. It's as if the elders of Israel are coming to Samuel, who has been faithful for decades, leading the people in the ways of the Lord. And the elders come to Samuel and say, Samuel, sorry, we need a substitute in your place. We need someone else to replace you. And that someone else is going to be a king. You've done a great job. There's nothing we have against you, uh, but you're old and uh, your sons are not following. We just need to replace you. Can you just imagine the hurt after decades of faithful ministry? Can you imagine the hurt that was going on in Samuel's own heart? But notice what he does in his deep hurt. He begins praying. He begins praying. This is what the elders of Israel should have done before coming to the solution. I'm both encouraged and convicted by Samuel's reaction to his hurt 
Samuel took his displeasure and his deep hurt, his feeling of rejection. He took it to the Lord. Friends, how easy it is for us to hold on to our hurts, especially when others hurt us, especially when others might talk in ways or act in ways that feel like rejection. How easy it is to try to find a human solution to our grievances, to try to come up with some control mechanism, some control solution to control the damage. And we try those in our wisdom. How easy it is to just talk to other people, even godly people, instead of talking first to the Lord. Now, friends, it's not wrong to share our hurts with others, especially if they're godly people, especially godly counsel. But it is wrong to come up with a solution to our hurts without asking the Lord to guide, to provide. And it's also unwise to talk to others before we talk to the Lord first. When Samuel takes this to the Lord in prayer, the Lord gives him a surprising response. The first surprise is the Lord, hearing the Lord say, do everything they ask you to do. That's a surprising answer. But the second surprise is to actually realize the true diagnosis that the Lord puts on their request. Notice how God gives, what, how God views their request in, chapter, in verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Wow. In requesting a king to judge him like the nations, God says that they are rejecting God from being king over them. This is a major exposure of what was truly going on in their hearts with the solution that they came up with. And then God says that from the very beginning, uh, the people of, the, of God have been doing this with the Lord. Now, God's intent from the very beginning has been to always be their king, to reign over them, to have authority over them, to show off his power and to protect them. And God has protected them through the ministry of Samuel for all these decades. This is how chapter 7 ended. Do you recall? In chapter 7, verse six, uh, 13, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. But now the elders are rejecting God as king over them by desiring to have a human king as their king to lead them, to judge them, to carry the battles for them. Remember, things have been going really well with Israel for the past decades. Peace from enemies. God's hand was active in oppressing the enemies. But all these goodies left the hearts of the elders unsatisfied with God and yearning instead to be more like the nations. And there are some important applications for us here, dear friends. If our hearts are bored with God, if we begin taking God for granted, we are, very, we are in a very fertile soil to turn away from God. If we are ungrateful and discontent with God's 
reign over us or with his ways, we will be in danger of being lured into thinking that the way of the nations might be more appealing, more to be desired. So ask yourself, does it please you? Does it satisfy you to be under God's reign? Do you find God's reign more beautiful, more worthy? Does it please you that God's ways are better than the world's ways? Friends, God's reign over us is manifested through what we desire. Have you ever considered that your desires are a window into your soul and into how you view the reign of God in your life? Is it possible that looking to compare ourselves with the world's ways, considering their appeal, that we actually might be betraying some level of dissatisfaction with the Lord Himself. God gave Him no reason to be dissatisfied with Him. God gave Him no reason to be dissatisfied with Him. Yet they would rather have a human king. They would rather look to the nations. Why did they take this route? Why would they be lured by the nations and desire to be like them after decades of prosperity, after decades of peace, after decades of, of having things go well for them? Well, the answer is given in verse 8. where God says that their request now fits well with a pattern that has been going on throughout their entire history. Look at verse 8. God says, as He exposes the diagnosis, God says, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Do you see what God is saying here about this downturn? God is exposing that their desire to be like the nations and ask for a king is part of the pattern of forsaking God. A pattern that they've had with them. From the very first day. In other words, this is nothing new. Naturally, even though God has saved them miraculously from Egypt, just imagine if you had been in that crowd of crossing the Red Sea. What other God could do that for his people? And yet, with all those miracles, with all those display of, of displays of God's power to rescue, to show that He is more powerful than, than the Egyptian gods. With all that, here this generation of Israelites continue to have a pattern of forsaking the Lord and serving other gods. And, and God says to Samuel, listen, what they're doing to you now, this is, this is the rhythm that they've been in from the beginning, for friends, each of us has a natural inclination to forsake God. Each of us has a natural inclination to forsake God. And we are born, we are born with that inclination to forsake God. When things go well for us, when God blesses us, when we've been experiencing a season of prosperity, our natural inclination is to forsake God. 
experiencing God's blessing is no safeguard to keep us happy and satisfied with God. Let me just say that again. Experiencing God's blessing, materially speaking, here on earth, is no safeguard to keep us happy and satisfied with God. In other words, the goodies that God may give us are not going to make us more happy with God. You've got to find your happiness in God beyond the goodies that He gives His people. If anything, experiencing God's blessing can actually dull us towards the things of God if those blessings become more important to us than God Himself. Friends, don't put your life on a cruise control when it comes to spiritual things. If we lose sight of God's greatness and reign over us, and we become instead more lured by the way of the nations, sooner or later, our hearts will desire to be like the nations, and we will act in ways that will reject God's kingship over us. The heart of sin is to forsake God, to turn away from His authority and His kingship over us. Be aware of what you desire. Here the elders think that because Samuel's sons were corrupt, they're justified in asking for a king like the nations. And they don't realize that in this act, they are now rejecting God and acting in line with a pattern of forsaking God and serving other idols. Friends, when people see spiritual leaders acting corruptly, and let me pause here. We are living in a day when more and more exposures of corrupt spiritual leaders are happening among us. We might say that's a bad thing. Friends, it could be a good thing. Not that they fall, but that's what's corrupt is, is exposed. So that we would not follow corrupt leaders. It's never good for a spiritual leader to fall. But here's one of the dangers that happens when corrupt leaders emerge. One of the dangers, one of the side effects with that is that it, it's easy to cause others who have been following those leaders to turn away to their own ways, to turn away from the Lord and thinking that, hey, if, if church leaders are this corrupt, I'm done with church. Well, friends, it is right not to follow corrupt leaders. It is not right to turn to follow ourselves or forsake God just because some leaders in the church get exposed as corrupted. We don't get a pass, and God will not be any less easy on us to say, well, if, if the leaders got corrupted, well, you, you get a pass to do some things that you want to do. Well, friends, no. We can deepen the crisis of spiritual leadership by using the fall of others to think that we can do now what we want to do, or that we think that we know better what to do. Be aware that as others around us might fall, that it does not tempt us to actually turn towards ourselves and to forsake God in the midst of all that. Uh, this chapter has implications also for us as, as churches. Uh, sometimes churches may seek spiritual leaders for themselves, 
that match the cultural values instead of seeking the Lord's values and solutions. Churches who are in decline or churches who are in a transition of leadership are especially vulnerable to look to man-made solutions for how to move ahead. Uh, friends, at this time in the life of our church, we are considering to, to affirm, uh, we're seeking the Lord's direction whether or not we should affirm a new elder who would be added to the pastoral team that leads our congregation. We want to make sure that we are not following merely man-made solutions. Uh, the very fact that we have a plurality of elders or pastors who shepherd our church is motivated by the fact that we see a pattern in the New Testament for a plurality of shepherds. Also, the criteria we want to use for identifying shepherds are not the criteria set by our culture, but by Scripture. We want to have an extensive time of prayerful consideration as a church. We're not looking for spiritual leaders who are given to pragmatic, man-focused strategies. Instead, we're looking for men who depend on the Lord, who actively walk with the Lord, who are gifted in helping others walk with the Lord. Pray for the current elders that the Lord has given to our church. Pray that we want to continue to be the very opposite of the elders of Israel that we see in chapter 8. Pray that God helps us not to look to the nations for how to lead this church, but that we would look to God's Word. After the new crisis emerged, after the true diagnosis was exposed, uh, we, see, we see in the third scene a clear warning is given. A clear warning is given. God tells Samuel to warn the people of the cost of their request to have a king. And the warning is given in verses 10 through 17. This section has a phrase that gets repeated several times. I wonder if you picked up the phrase. Can you look at these verses? Is there a phrase, can you see a, verse, a phrase that gets repeated in these verses? It's a phrase he will take. We see it for the first time in verse 11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. We see the, this verse again several times throughout this list of things that the king will actually take from the people. In other words, the king will actually deprive the people from what the Lord wanted to give them. Their sons and daughters, their fields, their produce, their flock will be taken and used in the service of this king. In other words, the people of Israel, in desiring to have a king to be like the nations, do not realize at all the costs of what it means to have a human king over them, all the costs of having a king who will provide for them, who will lead them into battle, all those costs they will have to pay. They're not getting a deal by getting a king. They're getting a ripoff. Because everything that describes the king that they want to get is going to be, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. And if that's not enough, 
this list of what will happen actually ends with what they will become. Look at verse 17. The last he will take leads to a becoming. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. He wanted to be like the nations. They will end up becoming slaves to their king. Friends, the cost of, of having a king like the nations will be more than they can bear. God envisions that they will cry out to the Lord against their king. They will have a fallout with their king. And the Lord warns them. Look at verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for, your, for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Oh, friends, hearing the Lord's commitment that he will not answer the prayers of his people, the cry of his people, should have been the, the final straw that awakens them. They may have ignored the, all the costs of what the king will take from them. They may have warned or, or they may have shaken off the warning that they will become the king's slaves. But hearing that God commits not to answer the prayers of his people when they will have a fallout with their king, that should have, have awakened them from their stubbornness. No, friends, by laying out these consequences and warnings, God makes it clear that they are pursuing a man-made security plan at the cost of not having God's protection. It was an act of God's kindness to give them all these warnings. Well, friends, it's an act of God's kindness every time he warns us, even though the warnings may not be what we want to hear. It's an act of God's kindness when he warns us. Um, it, it, it will not turn well for the people, as we see. The human king will not provide for the people, as they would assume. The king will take from them. The king will actually make them his slaves. It will be a very costly bill that they will have to pay. Friends, human solutions that forsake God will cost us way more in the long run. It will cost more than when, what we're willing to pay. And the way of the world promises, high promises, high security, but in the end, it will all be at our cost. In the case of the Israelites, it didn't matter. All the warnings, all the price just was not going to cut it. So we notice the climax of the story is that a decision, a stubborn decision is taken. Look at verses 19 to 20. A stubborn decision is taken, the last scene in the story. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. In this final decision and the repeat of their demand, the people bring up another area where God is substituted for a human king. It's not only that they want to be like the nations. It's not only that they want the, the king to judge them like the nations. They also want the king to go before them and fight their battles. Why is this important? The first time God is addressed in prayer 
in the book of 1 Samuel. Remember when it happened, where it happened, how it happened? It happened in chapter 1 when Hannah, you remember the barren Hannah when she was without children? When Penina, the other wife of Elkanah, kept hurting Hannah with insults about her barrenness, Hannah chose to go to the temple of the Lord to pray there. And here is how Hannah addressed the Lord for the first time in this book. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord of hosts. O Lord Sabaoth, or Sabaoth. The Hebrew means Lord of the armies. In this book, God's reign over his people was manifested through the fact that he was the God of the armies of Israel. He was the one who was leading the armies. But now, the elders of Israel bring up this request. Here's where they also want to substitute God, not only in judging over them, but being the, the substitute, bringing a king who would be the substitute, who would lead the armies before them in battle, who would carry them in battle. What an affront! We need a human king to win our battles, even though God has been winning their battles for the past three decades, as we have seen. The affront to God could not be any bigger. And what makes this story even more painful is to consider another detail that shows up later in chapter 12, verse 12, when Samuel brings up the rebuke again. In, in Samuel chapter 12, verse 12, Samuel says to the people, When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. In other words, uh, even though in chapter 8 we don't see the details, uh, all the details, but chapter 12 tells us that in requesting a king to reign over them, actually the elders of Israel were experiencing some military pressure from one of the neighboring kings. This makes the elders' request for a human king even more troublesome. It was not merely the corrupt sons of Samuel that caused the elders to come up with a solution for a king. It was also the military threat that they were facing. And sadly, the elders got the lesson of chapter 7 when they cried out to God for deliverance and God saved them. But now in chapter 8, they forgot it. In chapter 8, they're no longer crying out to God for deliverance. They are demanding a king even after all the warnings. You might say, what's, what's so wrong with asking for a king? After all, didn't God give instructions in Deuteronomy about the kind of king they should have? The evil was not in having a king, but in wanting to be like the nations and in wanting a king who would substitute God's role in judging them and leading them in battle. Instead of looking to God, they were looking to a new form of government as a solution to their problem. If chapter 4, if in chapter 4 the elders of Israel were looking to the use of the ark of the Lord like a good luck, char good luck charm, in chapter 8 the elders make a look 
to the politics and human leadership as a solution to their problems. Oh, friends, we're not too far away either when we look to human government as a solution to our problem as opposed to looking to God. People here are substituting God as their king for a human king. And it's not going to be the only time in history when they make this tragic mistake. Many centuries later, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to earth to live the perfect life that none of his people could ever live. The people of Israel, instead of receiving the Son of God as their king, the people, the leaders of Israel, decided that they would rather reject this king and demanded that he would be crucified. And Pilate, the Roman governor in charge at that time, asked the Jewish leaders, shall I crucify your king? And they answered, we have no king but Caesar. Friends, the news of the gospel is that we, the entire mankind, have rejected God, our maker, as king over us. We have rejected his kingship over us. And when God sent his own son to die on the cross in the place of sinners, he died as our king. He was rejected as our king. The people rejected Jesus' kingship, kingship and preferred to crucify their king. But God raised him from the dead on the third day. God raised him from the dead proving that he is victorious. That he alone is able to win the battle against sin and against death. And that all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all those who repent and turn away from trying to live life based on their desires, according to their wishes, and surrender to Jesus Christ as their king, all those who do that would be given and brought in to the victory of this king for his people. And the benefits of his victories are going to be ours. That means freedom from sin, the guilt of sin put off, the punishment for sin paid in full, and even the presence of sin will ultimately be taken away. Not now, but in that world that is to come. Oh, friends, we can share in the victory of this God King if we repent and trust in Christ. Friends, if you have not turned away from your sin, if you have not turned away from, from keeping God at an arm's length, if you have not turned away from rejecting God as king, I want to encourage you today to repent of that rejection. Turn to the Lord. He will receive you. Call on His name, and He will bring you into His victories. Oh, friends, if you'd like to know what that means, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Or I would love to set up a time with you to talk throughout the week. Or any member in our church would love to talk to you. But for those of us who have repented of our sins, for those of us who are his people, oh friends, I wonder, I wonder how you are doing in continuing to live joyfully and in gratitude under the kingship of God in your life. Receiving God, responding to the gospel in repentance and faith, is a, an acceptance, a, a receiving of God 
not only as Savior of our lives, but as King over us? Are you open to, to continue to, to listen to His wisdom, to depend on His counsel, to be led by Him as we have sung earlier in the, in the service? Or are you preferring to take the wisdom of our culture, of our world, and look to the cues that they give us and come to the Lord with the demands and with the, with the solutions that we can come up on our own? Are you allowing yourself to be the one who guides your life? Or are you continuing to submit and to joyfully follow the Lord? The people of Israel submit, substituted God with a human king. I wonder what are the ways you are tempted to substitute God with or for? God allowed the people to take the path of substituting God. Sometimes we're not happy when God says no to our requests. We never like to hear no when we come with requests to the Lord and tell Him what to do or have certain expectations or hopes. And the Lord said no. But friends, there are times when God's no is way better than God giving in to allow us to take the path of substituting Him. God allowed His people to take this path show them that the consequences of substituting God are never, are never a good deal. Saul will not be able to face the giant Goliath. He will not be able to face the big enemies of God's people. And Saul himself will end up dying on the battlefield, leading the armies of Israel in a losing battle and he himself will be killed in that battle. The Israelites had to learn that taking the path of substituting God never works in the long run. But when God tells us and warns us and would tell us no, don't receive that with displeasure. Don't receive that with discontentment. It may not be fun to hear a no, but in the long run, it's God's act of grace when he says no to our rebellion and when his warnings actually stop us in our path. We have seen how this story unfolded from the new leadership crisis to an understanding of the true diagnosis to the warnings God gives his people to the sad conclusion that the elders choose to take the path of substituting God. Friends, it's not worth it. I would like to leave you with the last quote. As one commentator said, instead of looking to God for help, we are more interested in prescribing what for God's help must take. Our attention is not on God's deliverance in our troubles, but on specifying the method by which He must bring that deliverance. Therefore, we trust the method. We're not content with seeking a saving God, but desire to direct how and when He will save. And friends, when we take that approach... God may say yes, but not for our good, but for our uh, damnation, for our uh, eternal or temporary uh, destruction. May the Lord protect us from having hearts 
that would rather trust and follow our own counsel despite the Lord's warnings. May the Lord protect us from having hearts that would rather demand from the Lord than seek the Lord. Would you pray with me?